Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a special place to donate to keep these services active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Carl. Hi, my name is Carl, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, and it's always a pleasure to come into this room and see so many friends and uh, people that I know, and also the people that I don't know. I feel at home with you as well, because we are all here, because we are all compulsive overeaters. So, just some very boring information. I've been in program for 20 years. I've been abstaining for 18 years and and a little bit. And uh, I never remember when my birth, my OE birthday is, because for me, this program is one day at a time. I never think that I have 18 years until somebody asks me. When I get up in the morning saying, I've got 18 years. No, I wake up in the morning and say, how do I prepare today to abstain from compulsive overeating? Period. That's it. And I move on from there. Because if I think that it's great that I've got 18 years, I will start buying some, somebody else's publicity about me. It's not that great. It's one day at a time, and it's, it's a four-letter word. It's called work, and I really work this program. Before I came into program, I ate one meal a day. I started a breakfast, and I went all day long. <laughs> Some people say that's grazing. To me, grazing means easygoing. I never did anything easy. I really dug in. I ate breakfast. I ate in the car on the way to work. I knew when the roach coach came to the office building. I knew where, all, where everybody in any office I've ever worked kept their stash of food. I, you know, and I knew it all, and I would eat it and not replace it. At least now when I borrow, borrow somebody's food, at least now I replace it. Or I usually now, thank God, I ask for permission first. I, I don't just assume that if it's food, it's mine. But I used to think if it's food, I'm hungry, it's mine. I don't care if it's in your desk or your pantry or your cupboard. I'm hungry, I ate. And had a lot of amends to make. And, and thankfully, I made them, and I had the courage to do it. This program gave me the courage to face up to the things I had done wrong and to um, swallow hard, go make my amends, and let the chips fall where they may. Before I came into program, besides eating one meal a day, I was the general manager of the universe. I knew everything. I knew how everything should be done. And I told you how to do everything. (laughs) And if you didn't agree with me, you were out of here. You were either my best friend or my worst enemy. My best friends were the ones who listened to me. And you can tell how many those were. And my... Everybody else was my enemy, and that was like everybody. And I was living in New York City at the time, so I had like 8 million enemies. <laughs> but you know, I survived. I was functioning. I had a good job. I, always, I was always employed. Um, I worked. I was able to get promotions. I was able to function. But the truth of the matter was, all I was was following one more addiction. I was a workaholic. So I am a compulsive fill-in-the-blank. My first addiction was with food, went on to work, went on to being of service to people, because that's the way I bought your love, by being of service. So I was always there and I was always helping, but the whole idea of my helping you was so that you would like me. It had nothing to do with being service of service. I've learned now, and I get the greatest joy, I even look for ways to do service to people where I don't sign my name, so that people don't know who I am. That gives me joy. 
If you would have told me that 21 years ago, I would have said, watch out because the pigs must be flying because that ain't going to happen in my lifetime. But I, I look for ways. I mean, I don't go out of my way, but I look for ways because it gives me joy. And then as I do that, I've realized how many people have done that for me over the years. As I've gotten the fog away from my brain and as I've been able to look at what I did and, and what has happened to me over the years, I've realized people did that for me. People have been kind to me over the years, and my doing it now is twofold. One, it gives me joy, and two, it's my way of repaying the kindness that has come to me over the years, and I'm grateful for that. I am the middle child of a middle-class family. I'm gay, and I've always been. I have an older brother who's homophobic, and I have a younger sister who is also gay who doesn't talk to me. My only friend was food. My only friend growing up was food. My brother and sister got along very well because he was the oldest and she was the youngest. Had I been a girl, my father would have stopped. He had to have his girl. Little did he know, I was gay, but you know, (laughs) by the time they knew that, they were working on the third kid. And And I do believe that if my sister had been a boy, there would have been a fourth and a fifth because my father needed his girl. It was not the girl he wanted. You know, he... His daughter, he had visions for what his daughter's, what his relationship with his daughter would be. He had visions for what his relationship with his sons would be. None of his visions came true. And unfortunately, he had a hard time accepting us who, as to who we were. He always loved us to the best of his ability. God bless him. He did everything he could to the best of his ability. And a lot of my amends were to him. And I had a lot of learning to do of accepting people how they are, the way they are, they're doing the best they can. It may not be what suits me. With my family, I've always said they were broadcasting on AM and I was receiving on FM, and all we had was a lot of static. But, you know, I got to program, and I got to program late. I think it was late. I came in, I was 40 years old. So for 40 years, I did not know how to be one of. I did not know how to do the things I do today, such as if you just saw me run out of the room, I've now been able to turn the cell phone off. Um, My mother is 94 years old and has dementia. In the last week, not to go into details because they're not important, it's been a week of ups and downs, not roller coaster, because a roller coaster is high highs and low lows. It's just been ups and downs and ups and downs. And I've left my phone on 24-7 because I never know when the family is going to call and tell me something I need to hear. So now they just called and told me what I needed to hear was that she had a great day, everything is fine. I said, fine, can I call you an hour? And they said, yes, fine. That's called setting boundaries. I never knew how to do that. You know, I would stand out there and talk to them and and say, this can wait or that can wait. And that can't, because I have a life to live also. By the way, my mother's in Florida, so that makes it even harder. It's not, I can just go over and see how she's doing. My sister lives in Oakland and has not seen our mother in three years, and she flew in to be with our mother, and my brother has been her caregiver for the last seven years. So there's family there. It has taught me humility this week. It has taught me how to be present for my family without being physically present. I've received kudos from them for supporting them and being what I think is just who I am today. 
You know, I called twice a day. And, you know, one of the things I did last night was I was yelling at my brother. I said, go home. You have to eat dinner. You have to be with your wife. My sister-in-law has muscular dystrophy. Go be with your wife. Go be with your daughter. Go be with your granddaughter. Get out of the hospice. You don't need to be there. And he said, you know, you're right. I'm going to go. And this morning he said, you know, thank you. He said, you really helped me to see that I, I don't need to be there all the time, 24-7. That's from this program that I learned how to communicate and to let go of the result. Because I wanted, you know, the old me would have said, and call me when you get home, and call me from the house phone, and I want to make sure you're there. And you know what? I don't care. I said what I needed to say. I support them to the best of my ability. Number one, 3,000 miles away. Number two, I'm still the kid brother. He's four years older, and I still get treated like the kid brother. And you know what? That's who he is. I accept him for who he is today. I and I set my boundaries. So, getting back to when I came in, I was eating one meal a day, continuously, nonstop, and I didn't show it. Thank God, um, I was. I'm originally from New York City, and based on the logistics of where my office was and where my home was, I walked almost two miles each way every day because there was no public transportation between my home and my job, which was great. I could eat all I wanted to, and I didn't gain an ounce. And I was also very active in some folk dancing groups. I was out three and four and five nights a week doing my aerobics. I was dancing and I was walking and I didn't show it. Then I moved to Los Angeles where one of the first things you get, when you, when you, especially when you're a transplant here, is this attachment to your right foot. It's called a gas pedal. And all of a sudden I'm driving every place and I'm not walking and I didn't get involved with my dance groups. And all of a sudden I feel full and bloated and I'm still eating. Because even though the stomach is full, my, my brain keeps asking for more food. Even though my jaw hurt from chewing so much. I admit, my jaw was bothering me. I couldn't eat as I'm shoveling it in. And I knew there was something wrong. And that lasted about one nanosecond and I kept eating. Because any feeling that I had, any thought that I had, any emotion that I had could be covered over with food. I would get a hunger feeling. I'd just get that feeling in the pit of my stomach. So, I'd, I would interpret that as, as hunger. So I would eat. Well, you know, you put anything in there, that feeling's going to go away. Today, I get those same feelings. But I don't have to eat over it today. Today, the first thing I do is I look at, okay, when was the last time I ate? What did I eat? Was it an appropriate meal? In other words, if it's between breakfast and lunch, was my breakfast a breakfast that I know satisfies me? If the answer is yes, then I go, woohoo, I'm having a feeling. And I stop and ask myself what's going on. And I use what I call the, uh, one of my personal tools is, uh, if, especially if I'm at work, I use the tool of the bathroom. I just excuse myself from wherever I am. I go into the bathroom, I go into a stall, and I talk to God, and I say, okay, I'm having a feeling, what's going on? What do I need right now? Did I need a break from what was going on at work? Did I, do I need to make a phone call? Do I need, uh, what do I need? What's going on? What am I feeling? It's not hunger, so we can rule that one out. And once I've ruled that one out, oh my God, there's all these other things that it could be, and that scares me. Because I don't know how to deal with those other things. I've learned how to deal with food, don't eat. Okay, great. What about life? Ooh, scary for me. You know? So, I wonder... What's it about? What's going on? Sometimes it means making an outreach call. Sometimes it means just calling my sponsor, even though I know he's not available. Just hearing his voice regrounds me. 
just refocuses me. Okay, I got. I have to focus. What's going on? What do I do? Where, how do I handle it? And ironically, I haven't had to eat over it. Thank God, you know, for the 18 years, it's just like, and th- those feelings still come up. I mean, this whole week with my mother has been, it's been scary. But the one thing that hasn't scared me is the food. Because I know, breakfast food at breakfast, lunch food at lunch, dinner food at dinner. I am now 61 years old. Um, my abstinence has been the same. It's been three moderate meals a day with life in between. Except my definition of moderate has changed. What I used to consider a moderate meal when I came into program, to me, is now a feast. I can't eat that much. And I definitely can't eat restaurant foods. I mean, I can, but their portions and my portions are two different planets. A lot of times I will sit down in a restaurant, and as they bring it, I just cut it in half, because I cannot eat that whole thing. And before I go to that second half, I'm going to pray about it. And like, do I, am I eating this because it's on my plate? Unfortunately, I was brought up in a household where if it's on your plate, you eat it. We, we didn't have a lot of food and we didn't have a lot of money. And, and, you know, I was a compulsive eater. So finishing what was on my plate was no problem. Finishing what was everybody else's leftovers was no problem either. I'm also the tallest person in my family. My siblings and my parents are starting five inches and shorter. So I tower over them, and they kept telling me I'm growing, I'm growing, I'm growing. And after a while, I finally said, yeah, I'm growing, I'm going out, not up. So we need to stop this. But the way our, our home was set up is that where we scraped the plates for the garbage was behind me. So they would just pass their plates down, and if I wanted to eat what was left over, nobody cared. And that was part of my growing process also, is that when I realized a lot of the behaviors that went on in our family... And a lot of things that I had done, I started making my amends to my parents especially. There are a lot of amends there. Unfortunately, my dad died after I was only in program about a year and a half, and I didn't finish them while he was alive. So I've spent many a long hour at the graveside, and that's been very helpful for me. And I've written him a lot of letters since he's passed away, and uh, it's felt good. So as I was confronting my parents, uh, confronting to bed, as I was talking to them about my amends and, and explaining about what I did, they said, yeah, we always knew you were stealing food, and we always knew you were lying, and we always knew what was going on. And I said, you knew I was lying. I said, how could you tell? I thought maybe I had a twitch or you know, a certain kind of grin. They said, it was very easy to tell when you were lying. Your lips were moving. <laughs> and all I could say was, busted, because it's true. I never told the truth. The truth hurt too much. It hurt too much to tell the truth. Because I wasn't the best student, and I wasn't the best this, and I wasn't the good this, and my brother and sister are. So it hurt too much to tell the truth, so it was always easier to lie. So I lied, and I got away with it. Of course, when they told me that, pre-program, I would have taken them and shaken them and said, and when were you going to be the parent and tell me? When were you going to confront me? And I realized... That wasn't their style. They did the best they could. When I've been in trouble, they were there. They loved me to the best of their ability. And you know what? I needed to grow up. Unfortunately, I didn't grow up until I was 40 years old and got to program. But you know, better late than never. I'm grateful for the days I've had and for the life that, that I've had. The life I have today is far different than where I thought I'd be at this point in my life. I thought I'd be better off. And I probably would have been 
had I continued lying, had I continued eating, had I continued not telling the truth, had I continued going on that path, I would have been, but would I have been spiritually as fit as I am today? And to me, that's the most important part. The food, the addictive behaviors will take care of themselves if I will take care of the the spiritual aspect of this program. When I first came into program, uh, my first sponsor had everything I wanted. He had the boyfriend I wanted, the house that I wanted, the car that I wanted, the job that I wanted. He also had the body that I wanted. I mean, he was gorgeous. But he didn't have the program I wanted. He got rid of me. And my subsequent sponsors had everything that I wanted, except they really didn't have the program I wanted. Nineteen years ago, I was blessed to find a sponsor that I've been with for 19 years. And um, I would say that if you don't have a sponsor, you're missing out on something vital in this program. Because today, when I go through stuff, whether it's with my mother or my family or my boss or my job or whatever I'm going through, my sponsor can call me on my crap in 30 seconds flat. You know, I can say something, he'll go, and, and he will call me on it. And it helps me to bring me back to center where I need to be. So, anyway, as someone who always lied, and, and I'd get away with a lot of it, I had a lot of amends to make. I've been very blessed that um, I haven't gone to jail for some that I should have. Had I probably been caught doing it at the time that I did it, I would definitely have been incarcerated. So I realized that a higher power, something greater than me, has been watching over me for now uh, over 61 years. When I came in, I knew about religion. I was brought up in a, a traditional Jewish home, and I went to a very, I went to a very good religious school, and I have a very good background in religion. When I was going to religious school, they did not teach spirituality. And, man, did they miss the boat on that, (laughs) because I think religion without spirituality is a waste of time. My opinion. Uh, And I happen to think spirituality is really what keeps us sane. Well, I, I don't know about you guys, keeps me sane. So, I heard about this spirituality, I heard about this higher power, and that sounded good to me, and that sounded good to me. But until I got it in here, until I really got it, I didn't get it. Once I got the spiritual side of this program, the addictive part of the program, the food and all that other stuff, became a lot easier for me to deal with. It's easy for me to deal with the fact, I mean, this thing with my mother. He gets to me every now and then. And um, the good news about that is I know that all I have to do to get through it is to sit quietly, breathe, talk to my higher power, and listen to my higher power. That's the hard one. I know what I want. This is the way it should be. And then I remind myself, I'm not general manager of the universe anymore. I need to do the footwork and be willing to accept the results. And sometimes that's very hard because I think I know what I want. And I never, I don't always get what I want, but I always get what I need. And I really do believe, I mean, they're slogans, but they work for me. If my higher power brings me to it, he will bring me through it. And I just, I know that whatever I'm going through, when I've lost jobs, when I've lost boyfriends, when I've lost a parent, when I lost my soulmate, the woman who brought me into program was my dearest friend. There are no words to explain our relationship. I mean, when I went to clean out her house in Missouri in January, which for a Southern California person... That's, that's known as hell. 
As I say, I spent a month in Missouri one week in January. But it was hell. And that was the physical part. The emotional part was very hard, but her, her sister-in-law was there, and she said, you know, I've heard about you for so many years, and we, we had never met. She says, but I've heard about you, and I never knew what your relationship was. She says, but you were boyfriend and girlfriend without the sex. Mm-hmm. I said, mm, I think we were more than that. Mm-hmm. We were soulmates. Anyway, she came into program, she lost 150 pounds, and hello, I was not impressed. Didn't impress me. When I saw the glint in her eye, the serenity, the peace, the calmness, that got me. That's what I was interested in. And as much as I loved it, it still took me a year from the time I met her to get, into, to, to, get to my first meeting. And I went to my first meeting in Honolulu, Hawaii, on a military base. And if you've never been to one of those, it's an experience. Um, but one of the things I found very interesting is that here, if you get a DUI, driving under the influence, the judge may sentence you to AA meetings and you have to go up to the secretary and get things signed. In Hawaii, well, on military bases, your weight is as important to them as whether you're drinking or not. And so if you are overweight or you're getting them, they can assign you to go to Overeaters Anonymous. And there were people going up to the secretary afterwards and having things signed. I go, what is that all about? And I've never been to a meeting. It was explained to me. I go, okay. But it's interesting. Isn't that wonderful that there's an organization called the United States Military that takes weight that important. Wouldn't it be nice if a lot of other people took it to be quite as important? Wouldn't it be nice if judges could say, gee, you were caught eating while you were driving and you were driving erratically. Go to over it as anonymous. <laughs> How many people have we all heard stay in these rooms? Oh, part of my absence is I don't eat in the car anymore. Because we all know we're being, di- we're being distracted and we're not being responsible. And today, I want to be responsible. Today, I want to take the time in the car if, when I need it to pray and meditate. But when I meditate, I usually close my eyes, so I found out that I need to pull over to do that. <laughs> but, you know, I found the spiritual side of this program and I started working it and I said, you know, what, that is what's keeping me sane. That is what's keeping me sane. That's what gets me to balance my checkbook every month and cry. That's what gets me, and not eat over it. You know, I balance the checkbook, I cry, and I don't eat over it. Thank God. You know? I have tools today. I can call somebody and go, ouch. And they go, okay, and we can be ouch together. And I don't have to do it alone. I don't have to be alone to go through what I'm going through with my family. I don't, you know, as, as I've built a relationship with my brother and, and as I build one with my sister, I don't go through it alone. When I lost a job, I didn't go through it alone. When I got a job, I didn't go through it alone. I don't go through anything alone anymore. And I'm a very private person. I'm a very private person. I would much rather sit at home and be by myself and do my thing. Well, that's what I would be doing tonight. But you know, someone asked me to speak at a meeting. Well, what's the question? I go to a meeting. And I share openly and freely. I learned that for me, the spiritual, I need to connect with my spiritual program every day. And so, as it, I need to be at work uh, down at the airport at 7.30 every morning, Monday through Friday. I live in West Hollywood. It's, a 20, it's up to a 40-minute drive, depending on, on the traffic. I'm up at 4.30 in the morning. 
the first hour of every day from 4.30 to 5.30. That's me and God. I read out of three conference-approved and one non-conference-approved daily meditation books. I read the four today. And because I am who I am, you know, that's the other thing. I, I accept me for who I am. I am not the world's best student. Never was and thought that was a bad thing. Still not, and I consider it a thing. It's who I am. Like I'm six foot one, I'm not a good student. So I take my four today, and I read every page twice. And let me tell you, sometimes the second time I'm reading, I go, I didn't see that the first time. And then I remember, that's why I'm reading it twice. Because I don't always get it the first time. And I read on reflections, and I read 24 hours a day, the AA daily book, and I read each page twice, because I don't get it on just one time. And that's who I am. And then I found a daily meditation book that works for my religious aspect. And it reminds me of the religious principles that I was brought up with. And I want to be reminded of those again. Because those, many times, I look at them and go, gee, they're very 12-step-ish, but it speaks to me. And I read that page twice. Now, when I'm done with that, put those books down. I have a kitchen timer. It's one of the other tools that I use. I have a kitchen timer, and I set it for 20 minutes. And that's my time with God. And that's my time to sit and pray and meditate and ask my higher power to make it through the day. Pray for those that, in my opinion, need my higher power's presence more so than on a usual day. And it's my quiet time. And I can't tell you how much I love that time in the morning. And I'm not a morning person. I'm really not. If the sun ain't up, I don't want to be up. Trust me, at 4.30 in the morning, no matter what time they set the clocks for, whether it's daylight savings or not daylight savings, 4.30 in the morning, the sun is never up. But I am. Because that's what will help to make my day successful. That's more important to me than that extra hour of sleep. So yeah, I go to sleep at 9 or 9.30. Big deal. But I use the kitchen timer. Why? Because I'm a compulsive fill-in-the-blank. And I'll sit there and pray and meditate for hours. Like my meals have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I'm compulsive. My television watching has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. My internet surfing has to have a beginning, middle, and end. My writing for program has to have a beginning, middle, and an end. Because otherwise, I'll just go on and on and on. I'm, ad- I'm an addictive person. And I will not be cured. I will not be cured. I get a daily reprieve, and the way I get that reprieve is to do the footwork. I cannot tell you the number of times I told my sponsor, my feet hurt, I'm done with the footwork. And I'll go, that's nice. And we move on. I'm not going to stop. I've wanted to leave program. I've wanted to not be around. I've wanted to not have to do this anymore. But you know what keeps me here? You guys. Because I realize I get my strength. I get the ability to do this thing called life from all of you. I can't do this on my own. I tried that. It didn't work. I ended up friendless. I ended up with nothing to do ever. I ended up crazy. Not, and unfortunately, I wasn't crazy enough to be committed, but I wasn't sane enough not to be. So i got to come here. And you guys helped me to remain sane. You guys helped me to deal with my family. Um, 
for, for people that, that go to the Sunday morning big book study, they know that I usually call my family as I'm driving, because it's a long drive from West Hollywood to Santa, Santa Monica. And that's like the 20, 25 minutes about all I can handle when, when we're not in crisis. And I'll hang up on them, and I walk in and I go, thank God I'm in a meeting. You know, I know, because I'm going to need a meeting right after them. Just, just work it out that way. And you know, that's not good and it's not bad. It's just is. I accept them for who they are. Are they doing life the way I want them to do it? No. And then I think, oh, maybe I'm not doing life the way they want me to do it either. It's a two-way street. And so I just let them be who they are. And I love them just the way they are. I accept them the way they are. As I accept the people around me. I mean, you know, I don't exactly like everybody I work with or everybody I see on the road. You know, road rage was made for me. That, that, you know, I coined it. And I've learned today that I don't have to do that anymore. And I can let people pass me. And, I mean, there was one guy that was just slaloming all over the place the other day. And I just said, you know, I can support him by slowing down and getting out of the way. And that was more important to me than to prove that he was wrong and to tell him he was wrong and to get, you know, none of my business. There are two signs that I put up on my desk because of the nature of what's going on in our company at this time. I have two little slogans. One says, none of my business. Because I have to remember to stay in my business and not somebody else's. And what's not my business is not my business. And grain, I'm sorry, mine's greater than mine. Mine's greater than mine made up certain decisions. Fine, none of my business. Stay out of it. And I start sharing this with people. Uh, I'm in sales support. And I start sharing this with our salespeople because they start going off on craziness. And their craziness will bring me down. So I just look at, okay, there are my signs. Now I, now I know what my goal is here. To remind them and remind myself that there are people in charge and that they're not me. So I share my program. People in my office, people in my life know I don't eat sugar. Do they know about overeaters anonymous, compulsive overeating? No. They know that I have a food plan. They know that when it's my birthday, thank you very much, but we'll either have fruit for dessert or we won't have dessert, and no dessert is fine by me because I don't need it. After I've had my meal, I don't need that, that dessert. You know, somebody said, oh, let's go to such and such a restaurant. I said, no, that's too much food. I mean, I'm going to end up with more doggy bags at home from that place because it's like a 12-course meal. I don't eat that way anymore. What program has taught me is how to say no. I don't have to people-please. I don't have to say, oh, well, if that's where you want to take me for my birthday. Hey, hello, my birthday, I get to choose. I'm going out with a bunch of people, and they want to go to a certain place. If I don't want to go there, I can either say, you know, I choose not to go there. I choose not to go there. Or what, I, what I've gotten even better at doing, which is a total gift of this program, going and being respectful of my program. Just because they're eating 12-course meal. I don't have to. I went out with a friend the other night, and uh, she ordered something, and there's no way I was going to eat that much food when I saw what they were preparing. And they said, um, do you want the same thing? I said, no, I want the food group, but I don't want the whole plate. I just want the main course. I didn't need the beans and, and all that other stuff that comes with it. I can't eat that much and still feel comfortable. And one of my goals is to feel comfortable in my body. You know, when, when I go to the doctor, get on the scale, and I just, I don't want to know the weight. I don't want to know, it's a number. You know, I've heard people say that th their weight on their driver's license is a lie. That's because, you know, they're, 
I have no idea what my weight is. When I have to go for my driver's license next year, I'm going to have to go stand on a scale because I have no idea. I know that my pants have been fitting me for the last 20 years. I know that occasionally they start to feel tight. And I say, okay, something's going on. What's going on in my life? And I get to work my program. But I don't want to know. I turn my back to the, to the number, or I'll tell whoever's taking my weight. I say, you know, the doctor wants to know the weight. Please don't announce it. I've been to some doctors' offices where they say it so loud that everyone within 25 feet is. It's nobody's business. And it's really none of my business. You know? My doctor started new things. She measures my waist and she told me what it was. I said, you're wrong. She says, how do you know I'm wrong? I said, because I know what these pants are and that's not that number. So you, be, you should redo it. And she was just, how'd you know I was wrong? I said, because I know what size my pants are. I know what size my waist is. And I, I'm not going to go there. So I have to work this program diligently. I have to know who I am. I have to accept who I am. I am not the world's greatest fill-in-the-blank. I'm Carl. Just Carl. And you know, for me, that's enough for today. I'm grateful for who I am. I'm grateful for how much I've progressed in this program. I'm a better son than I ever was. I'm a better brother than I ever was. I'm a better partner than I ever was. I'd like to think I'm a better sponsee than I ever was. I'll check with my sponsor about that one. But I know that today I'm honest. And I don't have to worry about what I said to who when, and is it going to come back and bite me on the butt? Because it ain't there. I know that I do my 10th step at night, and if I have amends to make, I make them. People don't get it. You know, especially when I go back and say, by the way, yesterday I said blah, 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 and that was really rude of me, or that was unkind of me. They don't get it. They don't know what I'm talking about. It ain't about them. It's about me. Because if I don't make the amends, I'm going to walk around with it, and eventually I'm going to eat over it. When I broke my abstinence the last time, it was not a conscious thought, I think I'll break my abstinence, and I did it. It had nothing to do with that. My father died in June. I did not deal with it. I broke my abstinence in August. It took me two months, but I finally got there. Since then, when my soulmate died, who, in my own way, I was a lot closer to, on many levels, when she died, and I'm out there in Missouri, and I'm going through trying to sell a house and take care of two dogs and four cat, five cats and two ducks and, and get all this taken care of as quickly as I can because I needed to get back here to my life, I laid in bed one night and screamed at God at the top of my lungs. Yelled and screamed. I pounded my fist. I said, I can't do this anymore. Never blame God for her death. That's, that's none of my business. But I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't handle this anymore. I'm not capable. I can't do this. Help me. And I was screaming. And the, I was downstairs in the basement where I was staying, and the people upstairs heard me, and they just kind of ignored me, which was fine, because I didn't need their interference. And I said, I can't do this. It was my way of just turning it over one more time. That was on a Wednesday night. It was right after a memorial service. Thursday morning, when we woke up, people were knocking on the door with all the answers that we needed. When it hurts enough, and you're willing to turn it over enough, and you're willing to scream at God if that's what it takes, answers will come. I've been very blessed in this program that, that I've gotten those answers, and that I've had wonderful friends, and I have wonderful friends that literally take me under their wings and keep me there and keep me warm when I need warmth and feed me when I need to be fed and nurture me as I need nurturing. And my higher power sends these angels to me 
and I know they're there, and I know all of you are part of that team that keeps me sane. I haven't had a car accident, and, and my food is in good perspective, and I'm grateful to be alive and to be here and to be with you this evening. Thanks for letting me share. So I'm told I can open up to questions, and I'm willing to do that about anything. Please. How did you get past the initial question of if there is a higher power, why did he put me in this situation to begin with so that I would then have to turn to the higher power to get me out of it? If he's really a higher power, she's really a higher power, why do I have to suffer to get through the other side? Did you... How do you resolve I, I never really had that question, and, and the answer is the same question we give to children when they're young, and they go, why, why, why? Repeat the question. Oh, that's a good one. Repeat the question. <laughs> how did I, tell, stop me if I'm wrong, how did I resolve that if there's a higher power, if there's a God, why did I get to be this way, why wasn't I okay right from the get-go? Okay? I never really thought about it, because I figured, if I'm here, there has to be a reason, and maybe it's for me to learn something. I don't believe that everybody is perfect from the get-go, because if there were, there would not be 12-step programs, there wouldn't be therapy, there wouldn't be physical therapy or emotional therapy. I think it makes us stronger. I think we learn from it. Um, I don't think I was given the book of how to live life. I kind of missed that before I was born. Some people got it, some people didn't. And for those of us who didn't, we come here. I don't think I'm less than other people because I'm in a 12-step program. I don't think other people are better than we are or, or than I am. I think I am who I am because God wanted me to learn my lessons. Start learning at 40. Some people learned at 4. Okay, I move on. I can't sit in the why, why, why from before. I have to, what can I do today to make me a better person today? How do I be the best person today? What tools do I need for today? And, and I go from there. I hope that answered it. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah. Um, how did you come to find an abstinence that worked for you? Thank you. How did I come to an abstinence that worked for me? Um, I listened a lot to people in the rooms, and I played with things, and I toyed with this and I toyed with that, and I definitely spoke to my sponsor. And it was interesting, when I first started working with my sponsor, the first thing he said to me is, I don't do food. I go, Excuse me? He said, you've been around long enough, you know about food. So I said, okay, and I went to other people. So my sponsor, I very rarely talk food, but when my food gets snurfy, I start speaking to other people. My abstinence, when I first came in, all I heard was three meals a day, no sugar, no wheat, no this, no that. And what I tried that, and it didn't work for me. So what I found worked for me was three moderate meals a day, and avoidance of the foods that I can't eat like a gentleman. And for me, I cannot eat a cookie. I cannot eat a package of cookies. I can eat a case of cookies, but I cannot eat a cookie. I cannot eat a cake. I can eat a sheet cake. And believe me, I've done it. When I came, before I came into program, I was going through two pounds of M&M's peanuts a day on my desk, plus all the food I was eating. So I know that I can do that. But, as an example, I happen to love peanut butter. It's one of my binge foods. But there are times I can eat it like a gentleman. There are times I can put it down. 
But I can remember when I first came into the program, there was a big note on top of the peanut butter jar, no spoons allowed. Because I would open the, the peanut butter jar and eat it. Now, I, if it's part of a meal, it's okay. But I was eating it. Oh, but I, I had my dinner, but now I'm going to have, you know, five tablespoons of peanut butter. No. <laughs> yes, you had your meal. The meal is what's on the plate, not what's in the refrigerator, you know. And, I, and so when, I, when I'm having trouble with peanut butter, it goes out. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> my time is up. Thank you all for letting me share. <laughs>